Amos 5.24 declares, But let justice run down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream flowing abundantly. Welcome to our eighth episode in Season 2 of Iona Speaks about Defending Self-Justice, a platform used for us as women to hear how we can walk in our dominion through the power of voice and the strength of awareness. May this podcast bring hope through enlightenment for every listener on their journey to self-justice in Jesus' name. In the first seven episodes, we've learned a letter, we've heard a letter to my younger self. We've discussed excerpts from the poem On Children written by Khalil Gibran. We've discussed the influence on defending self-justice through historical trauma. We've discussed the power of motherhood, the honor and value of fatherhood, the importance of living as your created being, and the cost of a great education. In this episode, I am honored to have as my guest a licensed clinical professional counselor, licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor, a woman who has several certifications in different treatment modalities, and seeks to bring enlightenment to others about themselves by helping people get the life they deserve. She is the founder and CEO of CRA Counseling and Consulting Agency, this dynamic woman who practices defending self-justice and helping others to defend their own self-justice is Candace R. Dickerson from Baltimore, Maryland, by way of New York. Welcome, Candace. The August 2020 and February 2021 report, the Centers for Disease and Control Prevention, also known as the CDC, stated that there was an increase in adults with recent symptoms of an anxiety or depressive disorder from 36.4% to 41.5%, as well as unmet mental health care from 9.2% to 11.7%. These increases were largest amongst those between the ages of 18 and 29 and those who didn't receive a high school education. According to the Mental Health Association prevalence statistics for 2021, Maryland has a low prevalence of mental health and substance use issues. However, this doesn't mean that there is little existence of mental health in our state, but just that it is less than in other states, partially due to underreporting. During this month, our world remembered 20 years of 9-11 with honorable tributes and memorials. Many were able to look upon that day and recall the exact moment in time of where they were, what they were doing, and what they were thinking when the first plane acted as a weapon and deliberately crashed into the first of the World Trade Business buildings. We have also been experiencing 19 months of a pandemic that has led to multiple changes in lifestyles and death of loved ones. While mental health issues have been in existence across our nation for centuries, they were not always the result of a tragic event. Yet we didn't always know how to effectively respond to individuals with diagnoses, resulting in human beings being used as test subjects rather than as valuable entities with purpose. Within the past few years, celebrities and athletes have been shining a light on the importance of taking mental health more seriously by sharing their platforms of influence to give power to those voices who were less influential. So for the first question, Candace, as a licensed clinician, what would you say is the reason for this increased awareness and better response towards mental health? And what are the contributing factors for an increase in these statistics? 
you know, the, you began talking about a, a mass trauma. Like 9-11 was a mass trauma. And we all were impacted by it, but not like the people who lived in New York City and people who lived in D.C. and the family members who were on the planes that, that were hijacked. Mass traumas impact people, but it impacts certain people, especially because it happened directly to them. And since then, it brought the nation together where we, we felt collectively, we grieved. There was a trauma. We felt powerless. I know when I would see planes, I would get nervous. You know, I remember being a little quiet day. And when I noticed the other quiet days, I wondered if this was going to be the day. And it was the first time where we came together as a nation and as a world and looked at vulnerability. And it, it became okay to say, hey, I'm having a reaction to being vulnerable, to being scared. And then when COVID came, right, it was a collective trauma. The entire world felt it. And it was the first time that we were, we were powerless to stop something that we couldn't see. Right. And, and for many of us, it caused a lot of us to feel be in turmoil because of that feeling of powerlessness and it triggered other memories of powerlessness. And the beautiful thing that happened since 9-11 and COVID is that you've got this band of time where people are embracing saying it's OK to say I'm not OK. Right? We just had an Olympian say it's OK to say I'm not OK. We had a tennis star say it's OK to say I'm not OK. We've had Oprah say, something happened to me, and I want to talk about it, and I want to talk about it without the shame being there. Ilana Van Zandt has made a career talking about what happened to her and what she worked through so that she can get through, minus the shame, which is the judgment, which is the stigma. We now live in a society where people are saying, hey, I want to be known by my pronouns. I want to define myself based on how I see me. By who I think I am, because what my body shows up, what my brain says, and how I connect to that brain experience, without the shame or the judgment or being stereotyped. So a lot of things have happened since 9-11 and to COVID, and that people are really looking at the power of just being vulnerable and being transparent. So we have people like Charlamagne Lagarde, or Elena Van Zandt, Monique, uh, Mariah Carey, even Colin Powell's wife are coming forward out the shadows saying, hey, I'm with you. I too have been through something and are impacted about the things that have happened in my life and the big traumas that have happened historically with COVID and 9-11. So it's a really good time um, for us to really embrace the courage of people coming forward and noticing that them coming forward has allowed people in Maryland to come forward and get help, especially during COVID. So we have people in record numbers getting treatment, which is why our numbers are low. Record numbers of people in treatment with and showing up for appointments. And people are supporting them and not demonizing or judging them. So this is really why the record, the numbers are so low for us here, uh, because it's taken away that stigma. So it's allowed us to be vulnerable and to really talk with pride about being in treatment and to be celebrated and not shamed or looked down on. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Especially I loved when you um, said the difference between the mass trauma and the collective trauma and the fact that there is a difference and that it's okay to embrace the fact that it's okay to say that I'm not okay and that there's, it's okay to be vulnerable and that not feeling that it's going to be a stigma. So I loved those answers. In The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks by Rebecca Skloot, we heard a story about how Henrietta's older sister was taken from her mother at the age of 10 and locked away in a facility that had extremely poor funding to provide quality care and treatment 
two and four black children, women and men diagnosed with a variety of mental health disorders. While this facility, which is known as Crownsville State Hospital, formerly known as the Hospital for the Negro Insane, they made some changes through the years, um, but it was eventually closed in 2004. And treatment from the early to upper mid 1900s were horrific. You know, we heard about lobotomies and insulin shock treatments, hydrotherapy, drilling a hole in the skull and draining fluid from around the brain and inserting metal probes into patients' brains to reach the depth of their temporal nerves. So as the years have gone by, treatment has uh, changed and there have been improvements, yet there's also been a disparity between how those with influence finances, and more available resources were treated, as opposed to those of a different race and ethnicity, who were still seen to be devalued and less than human. What do you think the reasoning for this disparity is? Um, Racism. It's in the culture of society. It's, 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 you know, prior to the 1700s, the affluent took care of their families. And when they couldn't take care of their families, they put them in cottages where they hired someone to take care of them, right? Like um, thinking about um, Helen Keller, right? She had, her teacher took care of her. So people who were in pot, who were, who had wealth, had people who took care of them. They didn't put them in institutions. And then some of the 1700s, they started putting them in hospitals. They weren't called hospitals. They were moral institutions where they did the thing that was morally right. But people who, did not have privilege, people were subjugated, people who were lower class, were put in prisons, they were put in horrible conditions, um, and there was always that disparity because with money comes privilege and with privilege comes ability to access services and access help and get certain providers who can really do um, radical therapy to try to help. Poor people, people of color, have always been treated differently within the healthcare system. Similar to health, because the healthcare system looks like society. There's always two worlds, right? There's a privileged world and there's a subjugated world. There's a rich world and there's a poor world. And there are certain rights that people who are poor don't have. And there are certain treatments that they don't have access to. And many times they would experiment with people who were subjugated, who were poor, who were impoverished. And they would use the, the, the experiments or the results on these people. So we experiment on you and then we use the cure for you. So two different realities. And the, the truth is that now they don't do a lot of the, the invasive treatments, but they do modifications. But in order to have that, they don't do the lobotomies anymore. But they do a procedure that's still in the frontal lobe. It's just not as extreme. But it took a lot of experiments on people who are lower class, who are poor, or people of color for them to ratify those, those experiments, those treatment methods. Right? And it's unfortunate because the we should all be treated as equals. And that goes by equality, not seeing someone's wealth as a as privilege, but seeing the, the desire to heal as a person that everyone should have. The desire to be whole and to be treated with dignity and respect should be the privilege of everyone. But that doesn't happen because of that privilege still exists. And even though Crown's wellness interesting, it wasn't that long ago that it was open. And I can as a provider referring clients who had no insurance to Crownsville. There are there are other crowns bills within Maryland, and there are other crowns in other states that have lower income, and there is a difference in the level of treatment because of the funding source. 
So if you go to a public hospital, it's going to be very different from a private hospital because of the funding. The treatment's going to be different and the length of stay is going to be different. And that's unfortunate because they should be the same. But that's what happens sometimes when you have society where they don't treat people the same. So hopefully there will be a, 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 an advocacy movement just like with other movements about making sure that everyone gets treated with honor and dignity and get the services that they deserve and that are humane and respectful and that within everyone's cultural definition of what's appropriate. That's great. Um, I mean, it's not great about the disparity. It's great having the understanding of why the disparity is there. Because as you stated, with money, there is privilege. And with privilege comes access to resources. And that's also attributed to race. And that's one of the things that we have to recognize. And our nation, you know, I heard in a message even um, today at my church where uh, the pastor was speaking and saying, you know, how the pandemic, all it did was enlightened and um, bring more reality and exposure to what was already there, what was already in the hearts and minds of individuals. So it's not that racism is so grand in 2021 because of the pandemic or 2020, or because we saw the horrendous things that were happening um, with police brutality. It wasn't that that wasn't present. It wasn't that that wasn't prevalent. It was the fact that the pandemic just brought more exposure to it. And that was that disparity. And it's the same with mental health. It wasn't the fact that, you know, these Olympians and these celebrities weren't dealing with mental health before. It's now just become even more prevalent. And now they're able to speak about it with such understanding and to let people know, let's take a closer look. Everybody has something that they're going through. So let's take a closer look at that. At the end of season one, I spoke about being the daughter of a mother who had received the same mental health diagnoses twice, once as a child and once as an adult. And that was um, paranoia schizophrenia. And although the treatments back there, we already talked about how they were just doing some really horrific things back then, um, you know, they were not grand. They weren't great. Uh, and the diagnoses were not well. And mental health was seen as like a taboo. So it was hidden for centuries. The churches wouldn't talk about it. The schools wouldn't talk about it. You know, there was just a divide that was going on. So in your professional opinion, what is the reason that that even still continues to happen today, even though we have such more uh, yeah. prevalence and understanding to it? it? It goes back to that stigma and how everyone's not treated as equal, um, that sometimes race and class dictates the diagnosis. Right. Sometimes it's a lack of information. Sometimes you do have the information and certain people get treated differently. Like I was reading a research article that talked about how African-Americans are three to four times more likely to be admitted with the same symptoms from a hospital than something their counterparts who are white. Um, same diagnosis, except in the same presentation. But there's a historical piece about danger that goes with the African-American. Just like someone coming with pain, they become the pain, same pain symptoms, and sometimes our pain doesn't get treated where our white counterparts, the pain gets treated. Because it's an assumption that we're going to abuse something or our, our pain's feigned and not, not authentic. There's a difference in treatment sometimes, and sometimes people can't look past their the oppressive um, lens they have or the stereotypes they have about us. So they don't quite 
see what clinically is right there to see. They, they've been, it's been indoctrinated so much about who they think we are or impressions about us that we don't get treated sometimes, right? And providers are human, so we make mistakes. And we all come with a certain level of prejudice, but what's dangerous is that when that prejudice or when that indoctrination, based upon the systemic experiences of messages being told by people of color, by certain genders, when that clouds the treatment and clouds the diagnosis. So you get a lot of people who aren't diagnosed properly, who might come in with mild depression, who get diagnosed with major depression, based upon race, gender, and age. And that's unfortunate. That's very unfortunate. So there's a movement of trying to decolonize the field and really, really looking at um, other ways of treating people and assessing people in a culturally sensitive way that's balanced and fair. So that's what happened with your mom, it sounds like. Yes, this is such a a time that we're in where I'm glad that we're we're highlighting mental health now because it's so important. Mental health has many faces. How do you help your clients obtain self-justice, whether they are directly or indirectly impacted? Yeah, it's, it's looking at fairness. What's fair to you? What do you deserve? Connecting with that, that sense of self, right? About holding you accountable and holding others accountable for what they've done or what they're trying to do to you, but also holding you accountable for what we're putting ourselves in historically, habitually. Right? Really being an advocate for you. Now, with other people and for yourself, advocating for opportunities, advocating for, whoa, you gave me this diagnosis as a child and you gave me one as an adult, yet I'm not getting the treatment. It's really advocating and making sure that just a fair thing happens with you, but also really looking at the conditions that you may have allowed or accepted yourself to live in and giving yourself an opportunity to raise the standard for you, right? To look at what's happened to you and be the hero of your story. And as a hero of this story, we're looking at what can I solve? What can I find? Who can I connect with, right? Because part of justice is, is the advocacy and it's the connection. Who can I advocate so I can get heard by people in my surroundings, but also heard by me by listening to you, especially when you think, wait a minute, Candace, you didn't sleep today. Candace, mm-mm, it doesn't feel right. Mm, don't put yourself here. It's really, really looking at what's just and fair to you. That's good. This has been such a great discussion, and I am so thankful for the fact that you've been able to um, bring so much enlightenment to this. Thank you for agreeing to join me on this episode and lending your powerful voice and perspective on the importance of defending self-justice. As one who is diagnosed with a mental health disorder or one who has a close relationship with someone who has been diagnosed with a mental health disorder, um, to become more aware have a deeper understanding, and be more engaged about the importance of mental health. Uh, The listeners who are listening to uh, this particular podcast, you are able to visit CRA Counseling and Consulting Agency at CandiceRDickens.com, and you can watch her discussions of Candid on Life Matters on YouTube. And are you being followed? Can Can we follow you on Instagram or Twitter? Yeah, just put my name in, Candace R. Dickens. I think at Instagram, I think it's at Instagram.com, I think. But my name in the Instagram should pop up as well as on LinkedIn and uh, other social media outlets. Right. And that's just a correction for me because I think I introduced you as Candace R. Dickerson and it's Dickens. So I just want to make that correction. It is Candace R. Dickens was our guest today. 
So we're going to end this podcast today with a quote from Shannon L. Adler, who's an inspirational author and therapist. And she says, never give up on someone with a mental illness. When the I is replaced by we, illness becomes wellness. As we conclude this episode, I trust that every woman and mother listening be empowered to walk in their dominion as they realize there is value in their life through all of their experiences so that they can become the defenders of self-justice for themselves. Thank you for listening to Iona Speaks about defending self-justice and have a prosperous and powerful week.